We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hi, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kernin. Joining me for this episode is Tom Bates. Tom is the Head of Performance Psychology and Culture at Aston Villa. He's worked uh, with youth, the senior athletes, players and coaches for 12 years. He's been with Cambridge, Bournemouth, Birmingham City, West Brom, Brentford, and then with other pro sports, basketball, swimming, boxing, rugby and golf. He's just released a new book, called The Future Coach, available now on Amazon. So a little bit of a different setup. We did a webinar with Tom. I had three questions for him uh, to kick the webinar off. And then we had over 170 coaches who registered. So we opened it up for a Q&A. So it's very much an extended version. Uh, Tom was very generous with his time. Uh, and the toughest, toughest thing for me was to try and edit this. So I've made this as short as possible without cutting out the, the great advice and insight that Tom has. So he just goes over so much here, training, individual player management, uh, how to manage your games, and then testing philosophies, challenging your thinking on how you're doing stuff. Tom is outstanding. So I'll kick it off with my first question about managing strikers that miss chances, and then we'll go from there. So hope you enjoy it. If you do, please give a shout out to to the podcast online we're still trying to spread the word i really appreciate people that uh, tweet about it that post about it post a picture just keep keep the vibe going please much appreciated and enjoy how to deal with a forward whose misses cost you the game so one center forward in particular has missed three four five six seven chances and you've ended up losing the game how do you deal with it in front of the team mr Mourinho dealt with it a certain way this week i don't know I don't know. We didn't win because we miss uh, incredible chances. Um, I would say joke uh, chances. So, what's the best way to address it? Mourinho called it joke chances. Called the players childish. Um, is it to you know to confront it directly? If a, if you play well and a striker does something like this here that costs you the three points, how do you talk to that player? How do you get them back on side? How do you deal with it in front of the team? What's the best way a coach should address this situation? Um, we've we've had a little bit of I'll just for one minute a little bit of background. We've had a bit of a discussion sure. on it on the chat. Some coaches have been, you know, the general consensus is it depends. My my thing or my challenge is with it is how do you facilitate the balance between holding a player accountable and then going yeah. overboard with it? Um, how do you manage that? Mm, really good question and it's one that we can all relate to right we've all had uh, uh, the, particularly strikers <laughs> it seems to be um, I mean I think one of the things the first uh, chapter that I speak about in the book um, that I've just written is a, is about seeing the, the world through the eyes of the players and uh, we don't see things as coaches, we, as people, as human beings. We don't tend to uh, see things um, as they are. We tend to see things the way we see them. 
the way that we perceive and think about them to be. And so the first thing that I would say is that, you know, this quality of empathy to really to really get inside the shoes of our, our players and see the world through their eyes has to be number one. So this quality of empathy we place in the centre. And only when we do that, uh, when we get to know um, how the players are thinking, feeling, do we get to truly uh, understand their um, their perceptions, their emotions, their thinking, uh, their thoughts, their experiences. And um, but you're dead right because ultimately, at the end of the day, certainly at the Mourinho, at uh, the devil in the Premier League, results define um, you know success, winning and losing, um, and it means something. So. You know, at that level, I would say, listen, there's something called the Maverick Calculator. Um, here we have a player who has the potential to change a game for us. You know, it might be a centre forward, for example. Um, and But all too often, he, he occasionally flatters or she occasionally flatters to deceive, right? So they do something that makes you step back and go, wow, this is a real, I've got a real player on my hands here. They've changed the game. They've got the potential to change the game and win me, win me matches. But the problem is they only do that 20% of the time. And for the rest of the 80% of the time, they take away energy from the team. They take away, they hinder, they, dis, they are destructive towards the rest of the collective attitude um, and environment. So they give 20%, but they take away 80 And in that particular instance, you know, you can think about your own players, your own strikers that you work with. If that percentage um, is negatively outweighed, then you have the decision. You know, once you've tried understanding the player, once you've agreed and set objectives and goals and worked on uh, building that weapon of accountability, once that's been agreed and the player's bought in, but their behaviour still continues, then ultimately, uh, if they affect the rest of the team negatively, that would, that I think that would be the point in which we, we would have to make a decision as a coaching staff and as a team to say, listen, this isn't really working and uh, we have to go in a different direction. Is it ever acceptable at a youth level, uh, talking 16s and below, was it ever acceptable to to address it in front of the team, criticise a player in front of the team? I, I, I certainly um, have been around both, Gary. I've been in both environments in different professional academies over here. And uh, some players, some coaches have done that uh, in an environment. Um, and... Uh, uh, it hasn't necessarily been the best outcome. Mm. Um, and I've seen coaches criticise in private and, and praise in public. And I've seen that have a, I would say on balance, that would be the thing that I've seen have the most effect when coaches have um, coaches have um, dealt with these disciplinary issues in private. And if the behaviour continues, despite that private you know, meeting, then... Um, the player simply, you know, doesn't continue to play. But in youth settings, I think it's, um, I would say that nine times out of 10, if a coach and the best coaches that I've worked with, have always worked to try to understand why the behavior uh, is as it is. And so if, if we as coaches, we go back to this idea that if we can understand really what's, what's, what's driving this behavior for the player, then 
we get to grips with that and we do a little deeper work. You know, we understand the influences off the pitch, for example. We understand uh, things at school, how, how things are going at school, how things are with mum and dad. And, and nine times out of ten, that behaviour is, is disruptive behaviour at a youth level, certainly in my experiences, has always been motivated out of a lack of something, right? So uh, a lack of um, balance at school or a lack of harmony in their social lives or a lack of, or a lack of something. And if we understand that force, the forces that shape those behaviours beyond the ball, you know, outside in social environments, then I think we stand a better chance as coaches at building a much more positive environment. Whenever you're on that there, is there a different demographic or a different social context to a player in England who is basically, yeah, maybe there's a different family structure, maybe they're coming from a, a tough background. Um, in the US, it might be they're coming from too comfortable, jumping out of a BMW, right. mommy's taking them, getting the water bottle ready, apathy, sure. don't really care. Is it dealt with in the same mm. way? Do you still have to, how do you coax that out of a player? Yeah, I mean, I say, I've got to be careful here because uh, I'm speaking about, you know, this, it sounds very soft, doesn't it? Understand the player mm. and work hard <laughs> to understand the, the social backgrounds. And, and of course, as coaches, we have to be very careful because, you know, one of the things I've seen you speak about often is is non-negotiables, setting an environment that is based on clear uh, standards of behavior. And anytime those standards of behavior aren't met, then there are clear consequences, right? So if I'm in an environment where the players are too comfortable and I'm surrounded by um, wealth, you know, then I would encourage the players to, for example, at West Bromwich Albion in the academy, the players are responsible for bringing their football to practice their drinks bottle, their bag, and any time they don't do that, or if they forget their ball, for example, they miss five minutes of training. Then if they say forget it twice, then it's half an hour. If they get it three times, then they can't train. So despite however far they've come, it's not the responsibility of their parents, it's the player's responsibility to take ownership, to be accountable for their own things. And, you know, it, you might say, wow, but the thing is the parents are investing, that they're paying a lot of money for their, for their boy to, or girl to be here. But essentially, I would come back to the question, you know, what type of environment are you trying to set? And if you're trying to set an environment where every player in, and staff member and coach is accountable for their own behavior, then then we have to be strong enough to back those things up, despite the money that surrounds the environment. You mentioned about seeing the game. There's a great point there, seeing the game through the player's eyes. One of our coaches, Eric, has asked what are the steps to doing this? Is there a personality or behavior test or is this a general discussion? Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Eric. Um, of course, if you have those resources, then the psychometrics can certainly be a tool that helps you understand perhaps at a deeper level, at a critical level, um, certain preferences and the personality and the profile, the learning needs, etc. But I think if you don't have that, then it's a very simple process involved at the start so uh, you know during pre-season when you have first have your players together you can um, ask them questions three simple questions you know what does it mean to be a part of this team what do we want to achieve together what can i bring what can i contribute to this team how can i help us to be better 
you know, what are the things that we believe in the most? And just through asking simple questions like that, breaking up the players into a, a, a unit session and allow, you know, a couple of flip charts in a room. And I would spend, you know, I've certainly been in environments where coaches have replaced the training session with this with this session. It's that mm. it's that important. And then Christopher's asked if the centre forward who's who's missing the chances and you've spoke to privately and publicly and basically have tried everything, still missing chances that are not due to technical breakdowns. What would you recommend the next step be if there is one? Yeah, so I think there's a difference, isn't there, between what we were speaking earlier. We were saying earlier if it was an attitude problem um, and our player was a maverick and they weren't necessarily putting in the effort and all these sorts of things. I think if a player is genuinely working very hard and um, they're missing chances, then that's something completely different to whether they have a, a poor attitude and they're disrupting the team. So if a, if a striker was missing chances, I think nearly all, on all occasions that the very next day, um, if you have access to the footage of the video, um, then great. Because I think the, the, the honest answer is that if we're making mistakes, if mistakes occur in performance, and of course they do naturally, failure on, on some level is an inevitability, it's understanding how to train specifically the next time we get on that pitch to work hard and, and practice to put these things right. So if it's a, a missed chance, for example, is it is it the timing of the run? Is it the execution of the shot? Is it is it the biomechanics of, and the balance? Is it the, whatever it may be as a coach, I would sit down and study with the player in a very um, tangible, very practical way, you know, what it is that we, we need to improve here. And honestly, the player is will, will be, no matter the age, very, very aware of the things that they, um, of how it felt, of how they, how they feel, how they were thinking in that moment, and gaining an insight again through the, through their eyes, uh, and watching that footage back. Because sometimes when they watch footage back, they they we see things right as coaches and as players that we that we didn't see in 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 the situation as it happened, as it unfolded. So when we have that access to video and we can look back and review performances, then we have a chance of um, taking in more information. But then an end product of that is we've got to get to work again. We've got, it's got to be something as a coach, we've got to frame this situation as something that can improve. You know, if the strikers mm. miss lots of chances over and over again, then it's um, likely that there's a pattern, right, of behaviour, of, of a habit that's happening in the, in, the, in the situation on the pitch. And it's our job as coaches to understand what that is, to deconstruct that and frame it as an opportunity rather than a, something that's final. You know, that setback isn't final. It's just another opportunity to learn what is it that I could be learning from this situation and what are we going to do on the trainer pitch to improve it. Question from Kyle of us. What's your thoughts on setting goal markers? With a, this is this is a, a topic. Setting goal markers such as eight goals, eight assists, uh, tangible numbers for a striker, or do you just kind of, you know, what's the process, process, process? What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. And it's a, it's a hot topic for debate, isn't it? Um, and certainly I think it goes back to understanding individuals. I've worked with lots of players that who would really prefer to set these types of goals. Um, and other players who, who say, actually, I don't need to set those goals. I just need to know that, that I, I have done everything in the week. Um, I've trained to my best ability. I've put in the effort. I've done the extras. I've worked on the specific systems that we put in place. And then they go out and, and are equally as successful. So I've seen it work for both. 
I guess you could say my own preference is that, um, you know, it's this idea that those without a vision will perish and clarity is confidence. So I am a huge believer in setting clear markers and objectives down for the team. Um, and, you know, that doesn't necessarily just have to be outcome goals. You know, the theory and psychology of goal orientation breaks it down into outcome, process and performance. And if we can get very clear about those three things, the outcome goals, you know, did I score or not? Um, the performance, did I get into the positions or not? Did I hit the target or not? You know, those sorts of underlying principles of, of goal setting, I think, is one of the things which um, can give players confidence because, you know, performance to a large extent is a, a bunch of unknown variables. There are so many things that can impact performance. And that um, unknown entity can sometimes cause anxiety. And so I would say that um, the clearer we can be, not just about the goals, but the, the systems that we set up, the aims and objectives um, of the practice or the match, you know, the roles and responsibilities, whatever we expect of ourselves, and be as crystal clear as possible about, about those and what they look like and actually what they mean for us as players, as a team, as a club, um, then I think the clearer we can be be about those things, the more confident um, players will be when they perform. Matt has asked on the opposite side, how do you manage a player who's scoring all, must be a great problem, scoring all the goals, not to develop an ego. How do you make sure that all, <laughs> all the roles are valued? It's always a problem and the coaches will always find a problem. <laughs> yeah, those are the preferred problems, aren't they? Um I think it comes down to, you know, we speak a lot about this idea of culture. And I've seen lots of your work, Gary, and uh, I'm a big fan of uh, of the words that you put around and the beliefs and ideals and around culture. And I think that if, um, if we can set a culture where hard work, um, improving performance, not just the outcome, is at the center of our culture, then we start to build an environment that's built on uh, humility. And if we can do that, then it doesn't, you know, great story. FA Cup final, Liverpool versus West Ham. Gerrard scores uh, three goals. The hat trick was the penalty, I think. You know, he's crowned in the press over here. This is some years ago now. Uh, he's crowned in the press. He's on the front page and the back page. And Gerrard's the hero. And, and Gerrard, uh, I know this from one of the other players who was playing for Liverpool at the time, told me a story. And, and they come into the dressing room and every, all the players are telling Gerrard how, how well he's done and what a player he is. And Rafa Benitez at the time uh, brings, you know, beckons uh, Gerard over and he says, Stephen, really well done, uh, great performance. But in the 34th minute, you didn't close down quick enough from a throw-on. You gave him too much space and that allowed him to take the pass and, and you know, counter-attack us. And I think that's, that is um, what a great story that is because when Gerard was surrounded by people wanting to tell him how great he was, he had a coach who was able to pick out some things and say, listen, that you can give more, you know, you've done really well and there's still an area to improve here. So with a player like that, who's at the top of, you know, if they're flying and the confidence is high, then the confidence and arrogance, I think are a different thing in my experience. There's a difference between the two. Um, and I think that if the coach knows the players, then if they focus on the areas for improvement, then that breeds a culture that we're always working hard to improve, no matter the standard that we set. There's all we can always get better. Mm -hmm. We can always improve. We can always do more. Brilliant. Some some great questions coming in from coaches, but I'm going to keep this moving, and then I might come back to a few of them. So 
just keep the questions coming. Um, the next topic then is how to deal with the substitution thing as a coach. It's a big issue over here, Tom, um, not only at the youth level, but at the college level as well. Um, sure. My, from a personal perspective, I, I kind of voiced my frustrations just when we, were, when we were waiting for you was, it's not necessarily, the thing I've seen a growth in is not necessarily, you know, the player, I'm not starting, I'm annoyed. That's, that's always going to happen. It's trying to balance now players that are having to sacrifice minutes or maybe having to come off. Hello? And, can you hear me? Gary, sorry, dropped out there. Yeah, I've got yeah. you back. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's trying to manage, how do you manage the players that are starting, but they're coming off or maybe you're rotating the squad or it's just trying to, you know, players who are playing, but are maybe having to take a smaller role. It's, is, is playing time an issue around the world or is it just an American thing? No, I think I think you're dead right. I think it playing time uh, is an issue uh, around the world, and um, certainly you know at academy academy level over here, I think there is a, a rule from the Premier League um, since categorisation that uh, players have to play at least fifty percent of games from the under 16s down. I think that's what it is um, for development purposes. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, beyond that, under eighteen, which is scholarship level, then it, then then it changes. Um, and of course, I think that 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 sounds reasonable because I would ask what the objective is. Um, is the objective of your team to win, and do you want to create an environment where the very best players and the hardest workers um, are rewarded with game time? And if that's the case, then then uh, perhaps your hardest workers aren't your best players, um, but you want to reward them anyway because of the environment and the culture that you're trying to develop within the club. Does that mean you, you may lose some, some football matches, some, some soccer matches? Yeah, potentially it does. Uh, but if that's your culture, if you believe in that culture that you're trying to set, then, then that um, defines how, you know, what you do with your substitutions. If, however, you know, from 16 plus over here, in the academies, when they get to scholarship level, then it turns into um, the priorities trying to win, right? To try to help them earn the right to play in a team that is trying to win. So the focus shifts at the senior professional development end of, of the um, academy. And of course, that's in preparation for uh, trying to help the players with that transition into the first team environment, and which is very much about results and winning. So, it's a, def a delicate balance, mm -hmm. um, of course, but I think it's certainly at youth level. Uh, you just never know. That's the other thing about it. I've seen players that were, you know, selected by the elite coaches from nine up to the age of 12. And, and they believe that this is the one, you know, this is the player that's going to make it into the first team. And then other players who have gone underneath the radar. Sam Field, for example, is a classic, you know, at uh, West Brom. Uh, went underneath the radar, just quietly went about his business, developed at his own rate, uh, wasn't necessarily held up there, wasn't a talent that shouts, you know, mm -hmm. he was a talent that whispers and um, slowly developed at his own rate and eventually ended up in the first team. So it's uh, we can be surprised about the rates of development physically, technically, tactically, psychologically of our players, right? So then if, if, we, uh, if we know that players can surprise us, then I think... It certainly makes sense to um, give players an equal opportunity uh, mm. to develop with their game time up to a certain age, 
But if you get to that college level and then it's competitive and it's demanding, then I would say, you know, that's when it starts to change. But it depends on what your priority is, I would I would say, Gary. Yeah, as a, as a first-team coach then, Kai's just come in there. As a, you're, what would be the answer then as a first-team coach? Players have got to believe, in, in my experience, um, players have got to believe that there's an opportunity for them. Um, and, and that opportunity might not come straight away. But it's uh, over here, it's a long season. There are 46 games mm. um, in the English Championship plus Cup games. So that's a lot of games. And everyone is going to be needed at some stage. Everyone is going to get the opportunity to play and prove their worth at some stage. So it's down to, you know, we were speaking about accountability and ownership earlier. It's down to the players then to um, make sure that they're ready for when that opportunity arises. Because if this is a culture and an environment where we believe that hard work gets you an opportunity, um, then at some stage the players have got to be ready. So ultimately, if it's first team coach, uh, you're trying to win, win games. Um, but uh, I've seen it the other way as well, when even first team coaches have have sacrificed some of their best players because of poor attitudes. And um, temporarily, you may lose some games. But long term, I think uh, in the end, you win if you're developing a culture mm. um, that far outweighs rewarding that temporary talent. And actually, what tends to happen is a greater level of respect collectively from the rest of the squad is is shown. And you build something that lasts a lot longer if you're given time that is if you're mm. given time of course you know let's be let's be real as well if you're a first team coach first team manager then results determine or could determine let's just say they could determine how much time you've got and um so there's always that pressure with at that level but i think if you have a strong enough owner or a strong enough director of coaching or a strong enough chairman in the club that you're in and we're back to culture again mm then it gives you an opportunity to build something more sustainable based on hard work, character, attitude. And um, so that would shape everything that you do, you know, including substitutions and rotations. Is it ever okay? So say there's a player who is annoyed at, at the senior college level. Uh, is it ever okay just to just to take like, take the role that that's that's put this and I'll just have to get over that there because are you accommodating a player by saying all right you know coming to them after coming to them on a Monday morning saying let's talk about it and then putting the arm around them are you accommodating that type of behavior is there a is there a way of just being like here you're just going to have to get over this or is that ever acceptable asking for a friend <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think uh, <laughs> I think it comes back to knowing your players again, doesn't it? Um, and you'll get different responses from different players, and that's a real skill. That's the art of coaching mm. rather than the science. You know, this is generally, when it comes down to it, players need to know that you care. But also, they deep down, they respect that authority as well. Um, you know, in the book, we, sp we speak about the authoritative coach who's tough, warm, who, who has who is the boss, who's in control, who's in command, but who also has the capacity to build healthy relationships with their players. You know, they're warm, warm, tough, I would call it in, in the book. And um, so I think if we want to build grit 
and resilience in our players, then if we go, if we start at the end and work backwards, you know, how is grit and resilience built? How do we give that to our players? And more often than not, I have to say that it's pretty, it's almost impossible for players to build their own sense of accountability, their own sense of resilience and grit in the absence of adversity or some kind of adversity. Mm. You know, I've not met a player or a coach for that matter performing at the highest level so far in my career in the absence of some kind of setback or turbulence. And there's that phrase, isn't there? The talent needs trauma. We need, uh, we call them snowplow parents um, over here. Uh, and I think to a degree, we can build a nation of wimps. There is a great book called The Nation of Wimps, isn't there? Um, and we we can't put ourselves in a situation where we are removing the obstacles because we deny the players the, the very opportunity to build their own sense of resilience and grit. And if that means, you know what, today, tomorrow, tomorrow night, you're not going to play. I'm sorry. I'm not selecting you because this wasn't quite good enough. And... I want you to know that that is something that I want you to improve. And I think that level of authenticity um, at a level that that the player understands gives them the opportunity to respond to that setback. So, you, ask, you know, is it is it okay to, to say that? I would say absolutely, based on the knowledge that the player still knows you care. Um, and if they know that, for, if they don't think you care and you just say to them that isn't good enough without pointing the way forward without offering some kind of guidance of how to improve. I'll give you a quick story. There's a, a coach that I used to work with. Um, I won't name him, but he, he worked with in a professional academy over here some years ago. And after a, after a, a game that the, the team were expected to win, it was an under-18s level, uh, they played a team that were two leagues below them in a cup competition. They lost the game 3-1. And after the game, the coach says, um, he says, um, boys, we weren't good enough tonight. Uh, and he doesn't say you weren't good enough or you aren't good enough. And, and if you compare those two, I think this is a real key point for any coach out there who, who wants to build resilient players. If you want to build resilience, yes, yes, put adversity in their path. Yes, talent needs trauma, but also help to point the way forward. So the coach is in the dressing room after the game and he says, listen, boys, we weren't good enough tonight. And if you study that phrase, compared with you aren't good enough. Here is a coach who doesn't separate himself from the team during times of failure. And he also, so we, we weren't good enough tonight. And he also says the key word tonight, which means there's a room for improvement. They can get back to the training ground the next day to work on it, to improve, as opposed to you aren't good enough, which is much more of a fixed, mm -hmm. you know, this idea of this trait that you either have it or you don't which is complete nonsense. Anything, pretty much anything can be improved with practice, right? We know that social scientists and psychologists the world over have undisputed and proved that to be true. So I think if you want to build resilience in your players, that phrase of, you know what, I'm not selecting you because that wasn't good enough and you need to be better at this. And you're in charge of making sure that you're better at this. And this is how you're going to do it. Or I want you to come back in a, tomorrow and tell me how you're going to do it. Then that sense of adversity gives the players to respond. And actually, that's the birthplace of character. That's where resilience is born, in my experiences anyway. We've, we've talked a lot about this on game day then. 
how one of the coaches has asked, how would you welcome this trauma adversity within your training setup? How could you introduce it there? Great question. Stretch them. Get good at knowing what they, you know, in, in teaching, it would be called differentiation, wouldn't it? Um, in your practices, <clears throat> there are different ways to stretch the players. So, you know, one of the ways that I think two weeks ago I saw a practice, the biggest player on the team was against the smallest player on the team. And uh, at first glance, you say, well, c- come on, that's, that doesn't look to be fair. It's a very physical, you know, 1v1 situation. Surely the big kid's always going to win. But actually, the coach, when I spoke to him, I said, why did you do that? It, was, it became clear as the session was going on that the little player was uh, under 14's level um, at Aston Villa. The little player was uh, very quick, very agile with the ball. And the bigger guy, the bigger defender, couldn't get near him. He just was so quick and agile. And so afterwards, he said, you know, that's part of his individual learning plan. That's part of his individual area to improve this for the, the, the big guy, the, the big defender. And uh, we did that to stretch him, to make him to, to realize how important it is to, to be agile. But in a sense, that the big defender is failing, isn't he? he in the practice, he's subjected to that um, opportunity where he, he's constantly being tested, tested physically. You know, and it's all functional. It's practical. He's being tested physically with through speed, agility, quickness. He's being tested technically. He's being tested emotionally because he's getting beat every time and he can't get near the ball and it's difficult for him. Uh, and he's being tested psychologically. How's my? How am I going to respond to this difficult situation? What What is it that I need to learn? And so, you know, as coaches, if we can plan and think, the coach of the future is a thinking coach. And a thinking coach pretty much delivers if the practice is good enough you can find all sorts of ways i bet all of the coaches out there right now thinking about the ways that that they they put they test their players in all different sorts of ways and i think if we can think about the practices that we put on uh, both at individually unit sessions and team sessions um we'll we'll if we're honest with ourselves we'll say that um you know we could probably think about these sessions a bit more to make sure that these deliberate um opportunities for development um, you know, the players have a lot more opportunities. So there's lots of ways to do it. Moving on to the, oh, so what are the, what about testing players who are best within a group? How can we differentiate for players who are finding it easier while making it realistic to the game? Great question. Um, I think I'm, you're going to have to forgive me. I'm going to tell another story to answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, this, this one, this one's special to me and it, it, it is in the book. And, um, I think it's where, it, where, when I visited Barcelona back in, uh, 2011, I was very privileged to, um, be invited to, to watch the academies train and watch the first team train. And as it was just after, um, Barcelona beat Arsenal, uh, three, one at the new camp in the champions league in the game that Van Persie gets the second yellow. And, um, I, I, I go to the, the training uh, session the very next day and um you know i'm floating I'm, I'm so privileged to be watching these great players messi puyo and yester you know javi amongst others I'm, I'm watching the game and i've got the help of my translator and i'm asking one of uh, messi's mentors um his name's a guy named ruben uh you know what what naively what's the secret to his success what is it that this he's had the opportunity to to practice that others haven't, you know, what is it that makes him great? What did the coaches do with him and what some of the secrets, you know? And, um, of course 
you know, there are no secrets. We know that. But um, one of the things he said was that when he was, when Messi was younger, he would run with the ball all of the time and dribble with it, and but he would lose it because physically he was a lot smaller than all the rest of the, the boys and, and they'd just, you know, bash him off the ball and he'd continue to lose the, the ball and they'd lose matches. They did uh, concede goals because of it. So the coaches had a very important decision to make. Are they going to encourage this player who clearly has a passion for dribbling and running with the ball to, to carry on doing the same thing? Or are they going to tell him to, you know, keep it e- play the ball simple, keep it easy, don't lose possession, don't take risks. And of course, you know, we, we, know, we know the outcome of, of the decision. But I asked the question, you know, the, he said the coaches um, encouraged his effort, mm. encouraged the effort behind the endeavour. And they never criticised just on the outcome. As, in other words, they'd never say, you didn't get past the player this time, so don't try it again. They would, they would, you know, grab him and say, listen, try dipping the shoulder. Try going on the outside of your foot this time. Try, you know, this twist or that turn. Just have a little go. And the interesting thing is, is that they played him up a couple of age groups. They allowed him to experience losing the ball on more occasions uh, and experience the physical challenge of the games. And then they play him back down at his own age group. And then they'd even play him down the age group below. So he'd get lots and lots of success as well. Mm. The other interesting thing is that in that environment, the teams would play against what would be the equivalent of a school team over here. So you'd have a sense of excellence player playing against the school side. And of course, the, the, um, the scores would be very high. So he'd get a lot of success in those types of games as well. So it's very interesting. And, 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 and probably the thing that um, opened my eyes the most is that here we have a player that is on one end of the continuum subjected to, you know, really stretched um, playing against the older boys. And then he's brought back down and gets to have success. And so they allow him that vast um, array of, of development opportunities, I guess you could say. But the, the, the crucially to his um, environment, he grew up learning that the coaches are going to praise him for the effort and that he was, you know, keep going until you're successful. And look, you know, just imagine the impact that that can have on any player growing up in any environment. You know, we can set those types of environments ourselves as coaches. And the um, the outcome is is quite remarkable, really. Mm. Love that. Great story, that. Great story. Say that one's in the book. <laughs> that in the book. The book is called The Future Coach, by the way. <laughs> Uh, we've told everyone they're all writing it down. We've got a couple of people that are halfway through it, so they said it's brilliant. So, um, All right, last one for you, for me. Team huddles, big over here, big over here, whatever, you know, especially in a college game, whatever, the team are all ready to go. It's almost like you would be, you would look weird if you didn't do a chant or a cheer. And I've always wondered, two-part really, number one, what's the point of it? Is there a, is there a positive beyond the, the players enjoying a moment together? And then second of all, is the spe- what, what's the role of a coach pre-game in terms of how much emotion should you give the team? Um, can, do they have to rely on that? Can you get away without as much as Al Pacino every any given Sunday speech every day? What's, what's the balance and, and what's your thoughts on it? Mm. It's a really, really good question. Um, and the reason I think it's a really good question is because um, I, I think, and you know, I saw an interesting interview the other day from Eddie Jones, being the rugby coach, and he was saying that the Al Pacino days 
are, are long gone. You know, this myth that the coach stands up in <clears throat> in front of the players and, and gives a lasting inspirational talk for 20 minutes before every game is um, is, is simply not true. But, and, and I think the way that we interact with our players in a modern day society now, technology is influencing things, uh, you know, the speed and instant, instant gratification of all sorts of different handheld devices and the way that we receive information has changed. But I think one thing that hasn't changed is is this um, connection between each other, this uh, sense of inspired uh, connection. And yeah, the coach can definitely uh, build that, boost that belief, reinforce that levels of levels of confidence before before matches. But I think the best environments that I've seen, um, certainly at youth level, are environments where the players of the players really co-create. The players um, take ownership for. It's a player-led, coach-supported rather than coach-led, mm-hmm. player-supported very very different environments it takes longer to build but i think when the players feel like they can contribute to their own um environment game plan uh, aims and objectives and but also be supported by the coach i think this this the idea of the huddle before the game if the players if the players enjoy it at first team level i've been part of teams that really like it um and it was something that they always did the first team captain initiated it you know two years ago and uh, since then they've always done it and therefore it's a part of their you know it's part of their culture it's part of their pre-performance routine um but uh, it, and i've been part of teams that actually players say you know we don't need that we don't need to it doesn't really mean anything to me i'm already prepared it doesn't really fit with my own pre-performance routine i need to be focused on what i'm doing rather than listen to what anybody else has to say you know 30 seconds before the game um i have to say though one of the best if we look at the New Zealand, New Ze- the iconic uh, New Zealand All Blacks and the hacker that they perform, um, you know, I, I'm not from New Zealand, but uh, that certainly inspires me watching that, you know, that uh, Maori, the tribal, the cultural, that ancestral um, uh, war dance before they perform. There is this sense that, um, and certainly the players would say, in the context of their background and culture, that works for them and it inspires them and it unites them and it prepares them. If, um, you know, you, you can't really see uh, the England team doing the same thing, but they might have a huddle uh, to go out or they might do something that fits or works for them. So I think it's not necessarily about this idea that, you know, I've seen the national team do it, so let's mm-hmm. us do it. There's this big thing over here that, you know, everybody wants to be Manchester City all of a sudden. Um, and they all want to play the systems that Man City play, and they want to, you know, play the way that they play out from the back and the rotations and the, um, the positional fluency and all of this. But the context does it does it fit for your team? Does it fit for your players? Do they want to do it? That's the big thing. Do they feel like uh, it improves them? And if it does, do it. And if it doesn't, don't do it. <laughs> normally, normally that's a is a good guide, you know. And um, just because. Uh, you know, Al Pacino did it and or, you know, whatever film. Don't shoehorn things. Mm. Don't mythologize things that we've seen from other other environments and try and put it into your own because sometimes it doesn't work. But I think on the opposite, if you're very clear about what it is that you stand for, then the behaviors naturally emerge um, and players will start to take charge and start to lead the environment in a way that's authentic. That's the key word for me, mm. authentic for them. If it's real for them, if it's not forced, you know, I've seen lots of um, 
work around culture, some great work and some work that is questionable. And, and I think as somebody said to me recently, you know, Tom, our, our, our culture isn't just a poster up on a wall. It's not just words that are just flung up there and just to make everybody, you know, read them. And, but they don't really mean anything to us. That's the key thing. It's got to mean something. It's got to mean something. And if it means something, then you've got a much better chance of being successful with it, be it tactical, you know, psychological, team huddle or, or whatever else. It's got to mean something. Harvey Miller, one of the coaches here, is just he's interesting point from England youth national teams. Coach said that changing rooms are quieter nowadays, gone are the days mm. of jumping up before a game. I always, Man City have that, uh, do that YouTube channel, City TV, where they put the mm-hmm. camera. And I always notice that, uh, I think it's very funny, that, you know, the players are walking out. You've got to walking out before the game and walking out at half time. And you'd swear they're just going for a walk around the park. Um, and before in America, like before a college game, we seem to be like so focused on getting everyone up. You know, this adrenaline rush. Do you, yeah. do you need it? Like, is that a cultural thing? Do you need adrenaline to be at a certain level to perform? Or can you just go out and, or is it a talent thing? What's your thoughts on that? That is a, that is a fantastic question. It's a, it's a topic that probably the one that I speak about the most with, with all coaches all around the world, whatever the environment, I've got to answer with a quick story. Phil Neville was um, on my, uh, the second part of my UEFA license over here in, in England. And he told me a great story about when he played for England against Brazil. I think it was 94. And they were lining up in the tunnel before the game. And the England team were, um, uh, you know, next to the Brazilian team. And the Brazilian, uh, the, the England team were, you know, fully pumped up, eyes out, out to the pitch, um, you know, stood still, chests out, puffed out, ready to go, fists clenched, on the toes, you know, ready to fight for the three lines. And Phil said that he looked across to the Brazilian team <laughs> and at the end of the, their queue, at the back of their queue, was a little fella playing a stringed instrument. Uh, and the Brazilian team, you know, swinging their hips and, you know, high-fiving each other and doing some, a little bit of samba dancing and congratulating one another before the... You know, they were really enjoying this, this pre-performance, uh, this moment in the tunnel. For them, it was a, a celebration. For the England team, it was... Um, you know, ready to, we're ready to go to war. Mm. And he realized then he told me that's when he realized that, um, it's, he got a great phrase. We need to be intense, but not tense. We need to be fired up, but not so much that we become over aroused. So, you know, we asked the question, well, what is in psychology It's called the, the eyes off. I'm not going to bore you with the science, but this individual zone of optimal functioning, and every, every player has a different zone. So some players will need to be fully charged, fully pumped up, and that's what gets the best from them. Others will need to have a quiet moment and uh, you know, perhaps go for a walk and find a little bit of quiet time or listen to their favourite music or watch their best clips on the iPad or whatever it may be. And so we, we have to understand, we go back right to principle one, um, which we, we spoke about um, today, which is about under, seeing the world through the eyes of the players. If you can understand each individual zone of your player, then it gives you a much better chance of helping them to completely prepare properly. In the dressing room, I know players that don't want to speak to anyone at all before the game. They they just they don't want any earphones in. They don't want anything. They don't want to speak to anyone. They want eye contact because they've got their own routine. That's how they. That's their own space in the dressing room. 
you know, don't enter into it. If I need something, I'll come to you. Uh, certainly at senior level, I think that um, becomes more apparent. But And then other players would definitely, they need to speak to people. They prefer to take the drinks bottle around the whole changing room and speak to every member of staff because that's, you know, they're very social beings and they need to relax a little bit. And So if we can understand the individual, the future, I think, the future coach will be the, f- the success of the future coach will depend on how well we can understand our individual players as people. And I think when you get to do that as a coach, you get double from the player. You stand much more of a chance of being successful with them and helping them to prepare. And the crucial thing about the story was that Phil, you know, the England team, if, if you were to ask them to do a little bit of a samba and get a stringed instrument at the back of their queue, it wouldn't have felt right. Yeah. Right, because that's not the culture of what they where the, where we come from, mm-hmm. our Anglo uh, you know background and ancestry. We're very much more uh, stiff and wooden, and that's how you know things are changing now, for the better. I think under the, you know Gareth Southgate and, and Dan Ashworth at the FA. Um, but but crucially, I think it's about understanding the context and the culture. Um, so one size doesn't fit all. Because. Are we making the players better? Are we creating a more intense game in the US and college as well? If you watch a college game, Tom, it's just crazy. Yeah. It's just both teams, 100%, smashing each other, 100 miles an mm-hmm. hour. And But if you, watched, if, you, if you watched the first 10 minutes before the game, you'd see the same thing, running, jumping, all the you know high fives. Would mm-hmm. we be better off trying something different to increase the quality or improve the quality? That's a great question. Uh, and I would say, what is it that you want to try to improve? Um, yeah. And when you say, when you, you know, what is it? What is it that you're trying to improve? Um, and, you know, oftentimes following the trends, just because that's the way it is and that's the way it's always been. There's that classic phrase, isn't there, Gary? You know, if we always do what we've always done, then we're always going to get what we've always got. And if you want to achieve new levels, if you want to improve it, whatever it is, whatever that quality is that you're trying to achieve, if you want to really go to new heights with that, then you've got a a prerequisite for that is, for me anyway, is thinking, being prepared to think differently, being prepared to be brave enough to think differently, being prepared to, you know, brave enough to act differently. So if it isn't this, uh, and and also, do the players like it? Do they actually enjoy it? Because if they do, and if it helps them, Mm. keep doing it. Mm. But I would guess that not all perhaps need that. Um, And some, there are certain nuances and preferences. Whatever that is for your team, for individual players, get to know what they are. And if they believe that it works for them, keep doing it. If it helps, Mm. carry on. But if it doesn't, and and I, I guess... Um, by the nature of the question, right? If you believe as a coach, if we believe as coaches that there's another level, that most of this actually doesn't have any depth, we're just doing it because we believe that's what we should do because other people are doing it. Mm-hmm. There are other coaches, you know, screaming and shouting and high-fiving. And there's another story real quick, just to, just to, just <laughs> full of stories. It's um, whilst in Barcelona, I watched the under-18s play by Leverkusen. And the Bayer Leverkusen coach was charging up and down the sidelines uh, with a clipboard underneath his arm, barking orders at the players. And the game was 1-1. Mm-hmm. 
right? So it was even, and it was very, very close. Technically, you know, tactically, it was a really close game. And the Barcelona coaches were completely the opposite end of the spectrum. They, they were sat in the dugout, in the shade of the dugout. And any time a Barcelona player did something well, they, they, they'd occasionally just get up to their feet, give a little clap or a whistle or a thumbs up or whatever, sit back down. Anytime the players need to do something different or be better, same behavior. They'd get out of the dugout, clap their hands or do a little whistle, make a gesture, sit back down. And the game finished 1-1. So it was really, really close. The, 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 the behavior that I was watching from both coaches elicited um, different responses in their players. Right in the German players, the, I could see them. They were struggling. They were trying to pay attention to what the the coach was saying and just also focus on the game. Uh, also see what you know where the ball is, where my man's gone, mm. which run I need to make, what's the next decision. You know, so does that behaviour from the German coach help or hinder? In that situation, it hindered. But after the game, I asked the, the Barcelona coaches again with the translator. Well, you know, why didn't you coach more? Why didn't you? Um, why didn't you uh, give more information from the sideline? Surely you could have really impacted the game, right? You could have definitely helped the players. Or, or... and he looked at me. <laughs> he looked at me as if I was I had two heads. And he said, uh, you know, to words of the effect of, if I was to coach my players, if I was to tell them what to do and give them the decisions, then then how would I know how much they know independently of me on match day? Our learning takes place during the week. Monday to Friday, match day is the player's opportunity to demonstrate how much they've learned in the week. That's their exam. And that's the chance. That's their platform. They get to demonstrate to us how much they know. How can we ever begin to develop independent thinkers? You know, because at the camp, at the new camp, in front of 90 plus thousand fans, are they really going to be able to hear me Mm. from the other side of the pitch? And if they're not, then what is the skill set that's required? We need to breed this idea of an advanced independent thinker, creatively alive to solve match day situations, independently of the coaches. And I thought, that's a fanta- what a fantastic teaching sentiment that is. So, but, but on the other hand, the, the uh, Leverkusen coach, if his idea is we want to win the game mm-hmm. and the coaches need to learn to take orders and, you know, listen to the coach on match day, then you could argue that he believes that he's been successful. Mm-hmm. My hunch is that if we really want to develop independent thinkers at youth level, then we've got to give them the opportunity. You know, would they lose more games is the question. Would Barcelona lose more games? Yeah, they probably would because the players would fail. Mm-hmm. But that's the point, isn't it? It's only, in, it's only giving by giving the players the opportunity to fail, can they really ever learn what it takes to succeed. It's a paradox. It's a difficult one to take as a coach as well, because normally one of the only, one of the first questions that people ask is after a game is, you know, not how did you play or not how, you know, how did you perform or did the system work? What's the first question that people ask? You know, what was the score? Yeah. <laughs> so, so if as a coach, you feel that you're being judged by the score, then it's, you know that's going to inform pretty much a lot of all your behaviour and your decision making process, isn't it? But if if we are defining our success by something greater, the quality that you talk about, you know, if we really want to improve the quality of what we do, then it requires just um, thinking about what it is mm. and work from the end backwards. All right, got some got some uh, questions just to wrap up with for some coaches. They've jumped in with some questions for you, if that's okay. 
No problem. How am I doing for the length of my answers, by the way? You Brilliant. I mean, everyone, um, I appreciate everyone's patience and everyone appreciates yours as well. So we'll just, we'll knock a few more of these out. These are great. Um, from Kai, what mistakes do sports psychologists make when working with a team? What are the signs to look for for a poor sports psychologist? <laughs> Bang. Great, great, great question. And I'm going to answer that through some of the mistakes that I've made in my own career. Um, uh, number one, uh, the ologist is is not uh, <laughs> is not going to fix everything. Is not the the secret weapon. Is not the answer to all problems. Is not the oracle of all information, knowledge, and wisdom. Contrary to popular belief, um, I, I would say that a, a good uh, performance psychologist understands how first of all observes and absorbs the language and the context and the culture of the environment that they're in. And they don't jump in head first, um, pretending to know all the answers. The second one I would say is big word for me, authenticity. Don't try and be something that you're not. Um, be who you are in whatever role you're in, not just as a sports psychologist, but if be who you are, be real. Because, um, you know, more often than not, in the end, people will, will see, will, can detect players, you know, a great phrase, Player takes six six minutes for a player. No, great phrase. Takes coach six weeks to figure out players. Takes players six minutes to figure out coach. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you could say sports psychologist if you want. So that those are two big ones for me. Um, and the third one is that don't come out of a qualification or a university background, you know, thinking that you know all of the answers because there's a big gap between what is being academically researched and what is being practically applied. Um, so those are the three that I would say. Um, this is from Ben. Hi, Tom. Thanks for your time. A two-part question. I'm about to take over an under-16 team who has not won a single league game last season. With that said, they don't look too bothered. <laughs> how, how get do... out! You've taken the wrong job. <laughs> he's, he's obviously he's found out why he's got a job. Uh, how do I get more get get them to improve themselves and put more effort into training? You've kind of answered it there, haven't you? I think so. Yeah, I think so. And just just get you know what has been doesn't have to be what is going to be. Mm. That's the big thing. Your job there, uh, Ben, is, is it Ben, Gary? Yes, it's Ben's Ben. Yeah. Yep. yeah, yeah. So, so Ben, you know, you have to turn the team from being a group of victims to a group of fighters mm. and get them to take ownership, get them to explain and understand what's gone wrong and how we're going to change it moving forward. That's a good, really powerful thing for a coach to do, to empower the players to start to believe that progress is possible. Start there. Brilliant. Knowing, this is from Kieran. knowing what motivates players is key, but where do we compromise between development of the individual over that of the team? Uh, okay, so I would say that if we are developing the individuals, so very simple thing, there's a team practice, Currently, there's a team practice. Um, is this at youth level, Gary, or is it senior level? Uh, from Kieran. I would imagine it's youth level. Youth level, okay. So 
normally, um, you know, if we periodize training, sometimes you have unit sessions, sometimes there is um, individual development sessions, sometimes there's team sessions, right? So there are periods throughout the week that you can prioritize what you believe is important. And I'm not saying that players should be off with, you know, there should be 25 different coaches for 25 individual players. But I think soccer, football over here uh, can take a little bit from NFL. Um, there's there's a lot of different input from a lot of different coaches. And I know it's a different game, but I think that's the way that it's going. So, yep, you can have team sessions. Yeah, I think unit sessions. But also, I think a bigger emphasis. I think my point is that a bigger emphasis in the future is going to be placed on individual. Um, certainly at the FA, they have now defensive coaches um, attacking, you know, in and out of possession coaches, goalkeeper coaches, striker coaches. I think the, the way that things are going and the development for the, you know, the future coaches is going to be about understanding how to work with individuals. But that doesn't necessarily take precedence on the pitch over the team sessions. You know, it's important. Mm -hmm. And of course, you have to get the balance right, uh, you know, on a Friday before a game, for example, on the Saturday. Uh, I would imagine that, that every coach is, is working on um, their, their game plan. Uh, and so that involves everyone, all the whole team, you know. And uh, that doesn't mean that five, ten minutes afterwards, players can't practice individually by themselves. Um, and it's about recognising that that little five or ten minute period after practice every day, by the way, not just on a Friday, but every day, built incorporated into that that practice helps us to work with individuals. So if there is to be a proverbial balance, I think that's the way that it's going to go. Um, but Ace has asked tips for a young coach that is a or tips for a coach that is younger than some of the players talking about senior level. That's an interesting one. That's a great question. Really, really good question. I can really relate to that question as well because when I, I was. Um, when I was at West Brom, I was working with a few senior players that were older than me. And uh, one of the best pieces of advice that my mentor uh, at the time, Bill Beswick, who is um, internationally renowned as mm. one of the best sports psychologists, um, <clears throat> worked with England and Manchester United. He, uh, he said to me that um, just switch the focus of the session. And when he, when he, when he spoke to me about that, um, I, under, I didn't understand what he meant at the start, but um, and it relates to another question that we spoke about earlier, is that I thought that I would go there as the ologist and uh, be the oracle and give them something profound and really change and shift the environment and create life-changing, you know. But the reality is that, of course, they, in that situation, the first team captain at the time, Stephen Reid, uh, Republic of Ireland International, 17, 18 years in the Premier League, knows much more about competitive toughness, knows much more about communication and the importance of it, knows much more about stepping out onto a Premier League environment in the competitive arena, performing under pressure than I do, because I haven't done it. And at that point in my career, I hadn't coached a player to do it. Uh, so that's what I mean about the theoretical principles. That's when I realized that actually, when I walked into that session, with the, with the team, I knew that I had to appeal to their experiences. I knew that I had to switch the focus and ask them to share the captain at the time to share his perspective. To um, and what that looked like was very simple. There was a, you know three bullet points on a flip chart, ten minute uh, uh, session led by the first team captain. Three things that we 
we feel that we can improve. These, these are the reasons why. How do you feel about that? And my job was really to facilitate that environment at the time. But I think um, it was an environment that allowed the players to ask me questions as well. So I was still able to contribute, contribute to the session, to structure the session. But my role was a facilitator rather than a, a leading the, the um, and you could argue that that facilitation skill set is, is what a good leader can do. So if you're working with those senior players, they have to know that you know your stuff, but you can earn that respect by structuring the practice that, re that removes yourself. You know, you, you're not going to have all of the answers for the players. Sometimes they'll have the answers. Sometimes they'll have better answers than you will think of. And it's about just being a, more secure within yourself to know that actually that's okay. You're on a development journey as well. You're not going to know all the answers. And if you can appeal to the players, you know, being authentic, we spoke a lot tonight about being that word authenticity, then the players will respond to that. And, um, and so structure the practice, uh, sh share your knowledge when the opportunities arise, but earn their respect through quality of what you do. Be very clear on your non-negotiables, um, your effort and your determination and your level of detail in preparation, uh, in the setup of your sessions, uh, they, will, they will respond to that and you will earn their respect over time. You're not going to do it straight away. Um, these things take time. Uh, and just like them, you're on a development journey as well. So don't pretend to have all the answers, I would say. Be very open about the fact that you're developing, but be clear about your intentions and never sacrifice the, the, on the quality effort and uh, determination that you put in to the sessions yourself brilliant all right talk to us about the future coach <laughs> the book the book how long did the it take you tom how, how much how much work has gone into the book many years you know you know gary it was an interesting one because i, I guess i've been right people say to me you know how long have you been writing the book mm. for and i think i've been writing it for quite some time, just through my own notes, through my own experiences over the last 10 years. Um, and I never really formulated it. In, I never set out 10 years ago to say, you know, I'm going to write this book and I'm going to do it in a year or the six months and I'll sit down every day. It's more just been a, a slow, gradual evolution of, of my experiences. So there are some things that date back all the way, you know, 10 years ago that feature in the book. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I've been writing the book for quite some time, although, you know, it wasn't until I looked back and my wife said, you know, what are you doing with all these bits of papers that you've kept for years, <laughs> years and years that, that they just filed up there and I find them all over the house. You know, why, why are you constantly leaving notes around and bullet points and, uh -huh. you know, inspiration comes from anywhere, right, Gary? Absolutely. You know that. Absolutely. Yeah, so quite a while is the answer. Brilliant. Um You've, you, you obviously have a, a little bit of, there's an application in there as well for coaches to use with their teams and players. Yeah, definitely. I think that's the thing. You know, when I've read good books before, I've always, I've always um, read them and thought, how, do, how can I apply that to my own environment myself? And I thought, you know, one of the things that I'd love to do is, is just offer some simple, actionable strategies. Let's try and bridge the gap between this theory or this story and, and how it might work for me. So, you know, there's some simple stuff that you can apply straight away 
speaking about performance profiles, um, leading team sessions, facilitating team workshops and seminars, talking about objectives and strategies and the whole goal setting process. But it's not just about that. I think there's a the, the reason the book probably took so long to, to write is because um, this isn't a book that is the answer, by the way. This is just some some stuff that I've been really privileged to um, have experienced in my career, you know, over the last 10, 15 years. Um, and a great amount of credit is really due to the, the players and the coaches that I've been working with in, in different football clubs and starting my career at Cambridge United and, um, you know, progressing into Bournemouth. And uh, Eddie Howe was my sense of excellence coach. Joe Roach, head of youth, gave me my first opportunity. These are experienced people that are still you know, working at the highest level of the game. Um, Mark Harrison at West Brom, Terry Wesley at uh, Birmingham, um, Rasmus Ankerson, Phil Giles at uh, Brentford, directors of football, Steve Round, one of the single biggest influences in my in my career so far as, as, a, as a coach, as a performance psychologist. It, very, very innovative. Dan Ashworth at the FA. These people are who have <clears throat> really shared the journey, taught me, mentored me and um, allowed me to see. And this is the book is really just about sharing some of that and and knowing that, um, you know, these ideas are, are out there. They're in action. This is not just a, a theoretical perspective. This is not just a story about. And, and I'm not negating it, but there's a lot of stories out there, the greatest athletes and what they mm. do and how they perform. But this is, you know, at a very um, uh, humble level through through my journey as an academy coach to first team coach to, to performance psychologist. And it's, it's I'm just so delighted to be sharing some of that and, and really give all the credit to the people that, that have uh, taught me and helped me, really. Brilliant. Brilliant. I've got it ordered. Um, so <laughs> for it to arrive, I've sent it from James Benyon Kearney. So James is sending it to me. Um, I can't wait to get stuck into it. Tom, I can't thank you enough. Um, this has been brilliant. I've I've been writing down little notes and I've covered, I've run out of space there. So um, I'll I've got everyone's email. Um, and what I'll do is I'll everyone who's registered for this, I'll forward up. I'll put this on a podcast as well. Um, so if if great, anyone yeah, wants great. to read on it, but this is uh, they can get you obviously on Twitter. Are you coming to the convention at all? Yes, I am. I'm going to be coming to the convention. Uh, I'm going to be leading a session. Um, uh, out there and uh, i'm yet to, to finalize the logistics but i'll definitely be there are you going to be there i'll be there so let's catch up oh fantastic great news well Thanks. thank you so much for, for having me real privilege to be with you brilliant no thank you tom and best of luck with the book and um i will send a link out as well with it so everyone can can get it ordered and and have a read merry christmas to you and your family M merry christmas tom happy new year thanks everyone take care Gary. all right take thanks, care mate. big big thanks to tom for his time and his insight there i did warn you that that was pretty good and there was a lot in it so hopefully you were writing stuff down i i watched listened to it twice um went over it obviously at the time wrote some stuff down with notes and then did the editing and wrote even more stuff down so uh, that's the first time i've listened to tom um i do have his book ordered so i'll be getting stuck into that very very soon but outstanding i thought uh, so many things to think about I love how it's, and that's something that I need to improve on as a coach, is seeing the game from players' eyes. And we all think we're players, coaches, but as we get older, maybe that changes. Maybe we see things more from our side, and maybe that just goes down a notch or two towards um, towards our own viewpoint. But it's always good to analyse and get reminders and maybe come back and test it out. So 
So hope you enjoyed it. Again, please, please, please just put a post about it online. Still trying to get the word on the podcast out. I would love it if you if you just tweet about it. Um, follow Tom. Look up his book on Amazon. Order it. Read it. Tell everyone what you think. That's what the Modern Soccer Coach podcasts are about. Getting quality people on. Challenging thinking and improving us. Improving the soccer community. Getting us all on the, on the right path to getting better and improving players. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sticking with it, the extended version. And I will speak to you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions, and resources, head on over to Coach Kernine on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.